This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 16th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, staff writer Adrian Cho joins me to discuss how a recent measurement of a muon's magnetism has the potential to turn into a field day for a theoretical physicist. Then I talk with researcher Charles Marshall about his project to calculate the total number of Tyrannosaurus rexes that ever lived. Finally, in a sponsored segment, director of custom publishing Sean Sanders talks with researcher Imra Berger about a 2020 science paper that describes finding a druggable pocket on SARS-CoV-2's spike protein and a ligand that jams it shut. First up this week, we have staff writer Adrian Cho. He's going to tell us about a new measurement of the magnetism of a muon that differs from predictions made by the standard model and whether this difference upends physics, introduces new forces, new particles, lots of hype. But Adrian, you're here to tell us how real it all is. How you doing? Very good. How are you, Sarah? Good. Okay, the basics here. What is a muon and why might it be a dowsing rod for unknown forces and particles? The muon is a heavier cousin of the good old common electron. The muon is much like the electron, except it's about 207 times more massive, and it's very short-lived. So it can be produced in particle collisions and pop into existence, but it'll only last for a couple of microseconds before it actually decays into an electron and other particles called neutrinos. But except for its mass and its short lifetime, it's much like the electron. They were sort of the first exotic unstable particle that was discovered after the electron and after the atomic nucleus was discovered and all that way back in the 1930s, I believe. And the reason that muons are interesting is because over the decades, physicists have developed this very refined theory of the structure of matter called the standard model. And we now know things like the proton and the neutron in the, the atomic nucleus. Each of them consists of three fundamental particles called quarks, and there are heavier quarks. The muon's magnetism turns out to be a kind of barometer for whether there are, might even be more particles out there than the standard model has identified. Thanks to quantum mechanics, 
the muon is never really isolated. Any fundamental particle, thanks to quantum uncertainty, always has particles and antiparticles popping in and out of existence around it. And you can't directly detect those particles. You can't pull them away from the muon, but they can very subtly affect the muon's properties. And in fact, they can make it slightly more magnetic. So the standard model particles that already do this add to the muon's magnetism by about a tenth of a percent. And it's known to exquisite precision how much that should be, like, you know, two parts in a billion. But if you measure that and it's off by a few parts in a billion, then it might be signs that there are unidentified particles popping in and out of the vacuum. And so it could be a sign that there is something just beyond the reach of the world's most powerful atom smasher, the Large Hadron Collider. All right, well, let's talk about how you measure the magnetism of the muon. Basically, the G-2 experiment yielded some new numbers for that. Right. So the G-2 experiment is this storied experiment that started way back in the 1990s. It got moved to Fermi Lab in 2013, and they rebuilt the whole thing, and they made it much, much better, and they measured the magnetism of the muon again. The basic thing that you need to know is that because the muon acts like a little magnet, you can make it twirl in a magnetic field. They have these muons. Their magnetic moments, as they're called, are all, they set it up so they're all lying flat in a plane. They expose them to a, a vertical magnetic field and they all twirl. The rate at which they twirl before they decay tells you how magnetic the thing is. And these folks have measured the magnetism of the muon to just blinding precision. And they find that it's about 2.5 billionths, parts in a billion, bigger than the standard model predicts. So this is an incredibly small amount of extra magnetism, but it's also about 4.2 times the total uncertainty in both the predicted value and the measured value, which is not quite to the level of five that you need to claim that there's something definitely wrong, but it's pretty close. Okay, so just to repeat back to you, they measured it with more precision than ever. It solidifies earlier measurements that were done as well, and they both differ from the standard model by a substantial amount, but not necessarily the level of precision that people would say this is a for real thing. Right. But what is crucial is that they reproduce the result that they got before. They reproduced it pretty closely. And if you combine the two, because the two results overlap, it's fair to average them. You get something that looks even slightly more solid than it did before. They've only taken about 6% of the total data that they're going to accumulate. They're still taking data right now. And so their uncertainty is going to shrink by another 75%. If this value holds out, then the disagreement with uh, the standard model prediction may very well go over this artificial but very important five times the error threshold. But the standard model's prediction for the magnetism of the muon has also changed over time. How has it changed? Has it swung further away from this number we're getting experimentally? The value has stayed about the same, but the uncertainties have come down. So yes, the theoretical side has changed. There have been through the history of this thing, there have been some interesting ups and downs. There was a an incident in the early 2000s where somebody found a sign mistake. This calculation is incredibly difficult and that had to be corrected, but the uncertainties have come down. 
starting three years ago, there's a group that numbers like about 130 theorists who have this consortium that their charge is to come up with a consensus value for the standard model prediction. Uh, and they came up with one last year. And that's what this has been compared to. There's a paper that came out at the same time as this new measurement, and the new paper uses a different way to calculate the magnetism of the muon using something called a lattice calculation. Does this new calculation method and their result, you know, change how we should feel about the discrepancy between the predicted value and the, and the measured value for the muon's magnetism? It all has to do with what kind of particles are popping in and out of existence around the muon, and you have to account for all the different ones. And it turns out that one particular set of these processes that's very hard to calculate is the one where that accounts for uh, particles called hadrons, and these are particles made up of quarks that pop in and out of existence around the muon. And in fact, this is the biggest uncertainty in the theoretical number. To get around the computational intractability of this thing, the standard approach actually uses data. There's another way to approach making these computations with things that involve quarks, which is called lattice QCD. If you will, it's a very sophisticated numerical method. And this is an effort that requires massive amounts of supercomputing time. It's very difficult. They've been developing it for decades. There are half a dozen groups who've been trying to calculate the magnetism of the muon using these lattice calculations. And a group this week came out with a value that has a precision that they claim rivals the consensus theoretical value. And lo and behold, it's a lot closer to the measured value. And they claim that there's no, no real discrepancy here. So, so no problem. No more difference between what, what's measured and what's predicted. It seems like at some level that, you know, it's kind of a white knight writing in and saving the standard model. But maybe it's not quite as simple as it seems. And it's really kind of neat because it gets into the whole issue of what you mean by uncertainty. The uncertainty in the consensus value that they hammered out is actually just derived from the measurements that went into it. The uncertainty on the side of this lattice calculation is actually a measure of how well the method works. And those two things are very different. And what's more, there are other lattice measurements, including one that comes much closer to the, the consensus calculation. And since these errors are not really sort of quantifications of statistical uncertainty or, you know, uncertainty in measured things, but are really measurements of how well does the method work, there's really a problem if, if you got two results from this new technique that are farther apart than their errors claim they should be. So something is going on here, but this idea that the lattice folks have simply found a mistake that all these other folks were making, that's going to be a hard sell. Well, let's talk about this discrepancy between the consensus calculation and the experimental observation of the muon's magnetism. It's a difference. It's a small difference. But what can fit in there? What kinds of ideas might theoretical physicists put forth and say, okay, this is what particle might be in there. 
Yeah. See, now this is where it gets really tricky, right? Because this method of looking for evidence of new particles that you haven't blasted directly into creation with an atom smasher, it's very sensitive, but it's not very specific. It's a little bit like taking your temperature and it says 101.5. You know, something's wrong with you, but do you know what it is? No. No one's looking at this discrepancy value and saying, aha, this thing I was thinking was around fits that. That fits my ideas. Well, I would say it somewhat differently. There are going to be hundreds of people claiming that. (laughs) The problem is that they're all going to have different ideas. This is not a smoking gun for anything. There are lots of ideas, new force carriers that act a little bit like the carriers of the weak nuclear force, these weird things called leptoquarks, which are kind of a bit like a muon and a bit like a quark. And But, you know, the real strength of this method is that it can be extremely sensitive to new things that you can't quite yet blast into existence directly. So it sounds like the field day is going to happen, that there is going to be a lot of room here for theoretical physicists to explore their ideas and see if they fit with this measurement, this discrepancy, and then look for it in the future in other experiments? The G-2 experiment is going to have more data. They're going to shrink their error bar, right? If this thing really holds up and it really looks like there's a problem, then there's a chance the LHC is supposed to take this gigantic step in event rate, which will make it easier for it to look for these very subtle differences from standard model predictions. And so if this one holds up and the LHC gets this big boost in event rate, which is supposed to happen in the late 2020s, then yeah, you could actually imagine that this will all start to come together. And if it won't point to an exact answer to what comes beyond the standard model, what extra particles, you know, specifically do we need to add? It's at least plausible that by the late 2020s, there could be between this measurement and things that become more clear at the LHC, some really strong indication that the standard model is just out of kilter and can't completely explain nature. This is not a bad thing, right? This glitch with the standard models predictions. I mean, I think one thing that's kind of hard for people who are not steeped in particle physics to get their heads around is that particle physicists have perhaps the most elaborate and precise theory in all of science that just accounts for basically everything seen with atom smashers to great precision. And you would think that that would be cause for amazing celebration. But the problem is, it's been this way for going on 40 years. And these people are really desperate for some sign of what comes beyond the standard model, because they know the standard model can't be complete, right? It doesn't include dark matter. It doesn't include gravity, right? It's got to be a provisional theory. But everything you see in an atom smasher, it covers it so far. So that's why there's so much excitement that it might not actually explain the muon. All right, Adrian, thank you so much. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. The Tyrannosaurus Rex lived 66 to 68 million years ago, and we have fossils to prove it. But it's not an easy calculation to go from the number of fossils to the number of dinos. Charles Marshall joins me next to talk about his approach to counting up T-Rexes. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. 
change your job, and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers, and it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. How many Tyrannosaurus rex roamed the Earth 66 to 68 million years ago? We have lots of fossilized bones from them. But what does that number, the number of bones we have, tell us about how many T-Rex actually lived? This week in science, Charles Marshall and colleagues wrote about a way to calculate the T-Rex population millions of years ago. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Okay, well... I mean, yes, these are basically the definition of charismatic megafauna, but what made you decide to focus on the T-Rex and to ask this question? So one of the things that happens, you find a fossil in the ground and you pick it up and you realize it was a living animal 66, 67, 68 million years ago. So there you are holding it in your hand and you know that it's a rare find. And the question that always pops into my mind is just, well, how rare is it? Is it one in a thousand, one in a million, one in a billion? I've asked this question most of my life. And I was talking with my graduate students and with some of my colleagues on the corridor. So, well, maybe we can work out how to do this. And then it turned out we focused on T-Rex, partly because it turns out we have an exceptionally rich knowledge of T-Rex, more than most dinosaurs, in fact, more than most fossil beasts. Is one of the reasons this is a tough problem because it's hard to predict what gets fossilized? We have a broad understanding of which groups we expect to see fossils from and which not clams and snails in the ocean living in the sediment and so get buried quickly and easily. So we expect lots of those and we find lots of those. Small animals that live deep in the forest are unlikely to be fossilized. When they die, they just rot and get scavenged. So we broadly know that general correlation, the more abundant the species, the more likely you are to find fossils of it. But that's a very, very crude measure. George Gaylord Simpson, one of the great paleontologists in the mid-1950s, basically said, we can say something as a large population size or a small population size, but we really can't say anything else. What did you have to do to get at a number like this if you can't, it can't be reliably extrapolated from the number of the fossils? What we realized, and this had been realized before, is you need data from living species. You simply can't do it based on the fossils alone. And so it turns out that for animals today, there's a fairly strong relationship between the population density, the number of individuals per square kilometer, and their body mass. There are relatively few elephants or giraffes, there are many more small antelope, and there's a bazillion little mice in the same area. We realized that if we had an estimate of the body mass of T. rex, and we knew a little bit about its physiology, we could actually make a rough estimate of what its population density was. And then we could use the geologic and paleontological record to then extrapolate out to work out how many individuals there must have been altogether. So if you knew its range and its density, then you can say how many there were. Exactly. And then if you knew how long they lived for and you knew what their generation time was, therefore how many generations it lived for, then you could multiply the two numbers 
standing population size and the total number of generations. And presto, you get the total number that ever lived. But in order to do this, you did have to make some assumptions about what Tyrannosauruses were like. The relationship between um, population density and body mass is very strong. And so we felt relatively comfortable extrapolating out to body sizes that are much larger than anything alive today. You also mentioned physiology was important for this calculation. Lower body temperatures means that the animals live more densely. How did you decide what to assume for T-Rex? Warm-blooded, cold-blooded, something in between? Most people feel that most dinosaurs are warm-blooded. There's a general consensus that they may have been a little less warm-blooded than mammals. Some people have suggested that they had the same physiology as the Komodo dragon, which is relatively warm-blooded compared to all the other lizards. Most dinosaur biologists think that's too low, and so we simply picked the difference between the two, the Komodo dragon being the low end, and mammalian carnivores, lions and tigers, as the high end, and we split the difference. The other thing that's very interesting is that the relationship is very strong, and you have to work out what the physiology is, but ecology makes an even bigger difference. What do you mean by ecology? So, for example, jaguars and spotted hyenas have about the same body mass, but for every jaguar, there's 50 hyenas in the same area. They don't live in the same place. And so even if you knew the physiology perfectly, and even if you knew the body mass perfectly, there's still a huge uncertainty just to ecological differences between species, what the food availability is, what the habitat is like, what the temperature's like. So that introduces the uncertainty, right? It introduces an uncertainty of about a hundredfold. When you calculated all this with the uncertainties that we kind of have to take here, what kind of values did you get for the density of the T-Rex population? For this study, we took a completely different approach because it's so hard to get precise numbers. And so what we decided to do is try to bracket the numbers. I could be really conservative and say, I bet you there was somewhere between one, well, I'll say two, an infinite number of T-Rex. And I'd be 100% right. That's the universe of possibilities. Got it. But it's not useful. We spent a lot of time trying to narrow down what a reasonable range was for each of the variables. And then we simply did random draws from each of the distributions and multiplied them up to see how those uncertainties compounded as we went through our calculations. So to answer your question, the population density we got, the middle value, given all the uncertainties, is about one individuals per 100 square kilometers. Okay, put that in context for us. We've been talking about all these living species. Is there something like that alive today? No, because the body mass is so much higher today, but it's about a 14th the population density of lions and about a sixth the population density of tigers. Okay. So it translates out to about uh, 3,800 T-Rex in an area the size of California, or about two in the size of Washington, D.C. <laughs> wow. So we have this number now with the density. And as we talked about before, you know, if you combine that with range, you get how many there were altogether. The total number is something like 20,000 alive at any one time. I should note these are post-juveniles. These are the ones that survived to adulthood. Yes. And so about 20,000. Now, the uncertainty is very large because mostly we don't know what the specific ecology is. The number could be as low as 1,300. And the high number is about 330,000. So the uncertainty set are fairly large, but tens of thousands. Right. 
So we're going to just add a little bit more uncertainty on top of this and say, well, how many lived all together through time if you take how many is in a standing population and multiply it by all the generations that lived? Yeah, so the number we get for that middle value is about 2.5 billion. So about half the number of human adults living today. Let's do one more mathematical transformation. And this actually takes us back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is how many of these are preserved? What did you calculate that the preservation rate was considering this range of values for the number of Tyrannosaurus rex that ever lived? It turns out that we have at least 30, 32 skeletons or partial skeletons that have sufficient material that you can sort of guesstimate their age. So that means that we have in our hands then in the order of one in 80 million of every T-Rex that ever lived in our current fossil collections. I should add too that counting individuals turns out to be very tricky. Sometimes you just find a tooth, but they shed their teeth. So you don't know if I'm finding 15 teeth, how many individuals that is. Or I might find just a partial leg bone. There isn't enough to tell that it's T-Rex, except that it's in the right place at the right time. And the only giant theropod we know is T-Rex. So we infer that it's T-Rex. So the number of bones that we have that are probably from T-Rex is probably in the thousands or more. What can you do with these numbers? How do you see this work extending further? So one of the things that one can do, for example, is, you know, T-Rex turns out to be very well known and there's quite a lot of fossils. Triceratops is even more abundant. But going in the other direction, how many species are there that were present that we simply have no fossil record of? So with these numbers now, if you have the preservation rate being roughly the same, a species that lived, say, a tenth the duration over a tenth the range, that means I expect about a hundredth the number of fossils. And that means I probably will have missed it in the fossil record. And so I can start to estimate how many things I might have missed. It's sort of the known unknowns, which currently we don't know how to assess easily. Yeah. Why is this a good time to take a look at this? What parts of our understanding are making this easier to do now than it was decades ago? One of the things that our calculations relied upon was the fact that there are quite a lot of fossils known, but also that we can do a lot more with them than, say, George Gaylord Simpson realized that one could do 70 years ago. You can cut the bone and look at the bone histology and make an estimate of the age. If you have the estimate of the age, then you can develop growth curves. You also can develop survivorship curves. What's the probability of living to a certain age? We can estimate maximum age. That means it's possible to estimate the time of onset of sexual maturity from the growth curve. It means that we can estimate uh, the generation time. So there are a lot of biological aspects of it that if you just hold one fossil in your hand, see impossible. How old was it? Was it sexually mature? How likely was it? When was it likely to die? How lucky was it to reach the age that it currently was? And so this study exploited our fairly rich knowledge now of T-Rex. I'm also struck when I look at the papers that we cited, how many of them are 2020, 2019? And so... There's a lot more information flooding in that we were able to take advantage of. My graduate students, my lab group have very diverse research interests. And so part of my motive for starting the study was just to see, let's all do something together and let's see if I can work them through the process of starting from scratch to publication 
because we had no idea it would finish up in science. <laughs> That's great. Ask an interesting question and sometimes you get an interesting answer. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Charles. You are most welcome. Thank you. Charles Marshall is director of the University of California Museum of Paleontology and professor of integrative biology at the University of California, Berkeley. You can find a link to his study at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by Oracle for Research. Custom Publishing Director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Imra Berger about finding a druggable pocket on the novel coronavirus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by Oracle for Research. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Imra Berger, Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Bristol in the UK. He researches essential proteins in human health and disease, using this knowledge to create synthetic vaccines, as well as to develop enabling technologies for this purpose. Imra, welcome and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Hi Sean, it's my pleasure. So Imra, in 2020, Science published a research report authored by you and your collaborators describing an important discovery about SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. Can you tell us briefly what you found? Yes, certainly. Sean, as you remember, those were unprecedented times. Remember, we had the first lockdown and everything, including the university, was shuttered. Bristol turned into a ghost town. It was incredible, really, kind of spooky. At our university, a handful of clinicians, virologists, and a few other scientists continued to work, digging deep, trying to understand what was going on and to do something about the pandemic. For what they were doing, they needed SARS-2 antigens. And the major antigen of the SARS-2 virus is the spike uh, protein, and the virus what it does is it uses the spike to attach to the cells and then to infect them. And so we made this spike. And because we use a slightly different method than most everybody else, we had to quality control what we were doing. So we had to show that it really looks like what you would normally have on the surface of the virus. And uh, we use cryo-electron microscopy for this. That's a technique with, uh, which you can look at the ultra structure of the sample you uh, produce and uh, we also needed high performance cloud computing and when we did this to our great surprise we had a new entirely unexpected feature we found a druggable pocket and we did not only find this pocket but we actually found a ligand a small molecule linoleic acid tightly bound in this pocket and jamming it shut now this is a a really interesting and, and surprising discovery, but why is it important? It took us a while to actually, you know, like understand this because we are not coronavirus people and we also have never researched something like uh, linoleic acid. But we then looked into the details and uh, so now the spike, as it happens on the surface of the virus, is known to exist in two forms or two shapes which are different. So there is an open form of the spike uh, protein, and that's actually the form which the virus uses to attach to the cells and get in. And then there is a closed form. And this closed form is actually not infectious. 
So people think that uh, what the virus does is use this closed form when it travels through the body to kind of hide these important parts of the virus with which it would attach to the cells to avoid the immune surveillance. But then when it comes to a cell and uh, wants to infect it, then it opens up and it attaches to the cell. And it goes in, starts to replicate sets of this chain reaction, and then all these bad things happen. Now, according to our data, the linoleic acid in the pocket had locked the spike in the not infectious form. And we were very excited about this, of course, because that would mean that the virus cannot attach to the cells, cannot get in, cannot replicate, and there is no chain reaction. So we confirmed our discovery experimentally, and we applied a method when you can yank out the linoleic acid out of this pocket. And indeed, the spike then became more infectious again. So this told us that we had something amazing in our hands. We had this pocket, which is like a lock, and we could apply this lock to arrest the virus in a non-infectious form. Imre, back to the actual discovery, could you explain in a bit more depth how you reached the breakthrough and what some of the technical challenges were? The key to the discovery was using cryoelectron microscopy. So how that works is that you take the spike which you made and you purify it, and then you put it into the electron microscope, and then you record thousands of movies of that spike from every possible direction. And all you need to do now is to put this together into a three-dimensional representation. But it's easier said than done because like, you have literally terabytes worth of data which you collect. And in order to piece this all together, you need massive computation. The number crunching starts. And uh, it used to take weeks and months until you got this done. But here we got incredibly lucky. Just shortly before the pandemic, we had finished a different project. That's when our collaboration with Oracle Research started, because with Oracle, we together figured out how this immensely intensive type of computation can be done much faster than had been possible, literally within hours and days. So what you do is you put all these movies you have and you put them on Oracle's cloud. Oracle's cloud is a gigantic web of computational nodes distributed all over the world and ready to crunch numbers whenever you need it. So rather than taking each frame one after the other and calculating through them, we just blasted it on the cloud, distributed it everywhere, and then the frames would come back. They were processed in parallel. Speed is everything in a pandemic, and our colleagues at Oracle made things happen at an incredible pace. So what are the next steps? How will you move this, this work forward to benefit patients in the real world? Well, you know, the, I mean, that's a very good question, Jean. And this was exactly the question we faced when we had uh, figured out what we actually had. To translate this, this uh, potentially game-changing discovery, what we did was that over Christmas, we founded a new company called Halo Therapeutics. We had to do this because we needed to put together the legal framework to actually like get this undertaking funded and get it to the clinic and to sponsor clinical trials and to move it forward. And uh, we had to raise money, of course, and we were amazed how literally everybody we talked to wanted to get involved and do something about the pandemic. So we put together a seed funding round. We collected amazing, great people, 
experts, key researchers, clinicians, drug development guys, manufacturing guys. And uh, we are now at work 24-7 to translate our discovery and bring a range of products to the market as soon as we can. So what types of drugs are you planning to develop at Halo? Well, you know, basically we want to follow what the virus does when it enters your body. So uh, what happens is that, you know, first the virus like goes into your nose and starts to replicate. So that's the first hot zone. And a few days later, it slides into your throat. And then yet again, later, it goes into your lung. And that's when mayhem starts. So you need to catch the virus as early as possible. So we want to attack the first hot zone first. Uh, and this we plan to do with a nasal spray that will be used to treat patients immediately when they feel that they have uh, possibly contracted the virus. And we also plan to de develop an inhaler. So that would be to target the lungs. So when you are already a bit further ahead in the disease progression and you have already like difficulties breathing and you're developing those symptoms, which are typical for COVID, then the inhaler would be deployed so that when the patients present to A&D at early stage breathing, difficulties can then immediately be treated. Imra, how do you think the, the antiviral approach that you're using with uh, linoleic acid will work on uh, the variants that are coming out of the coronavirus and, and even future potential mutants? That is a key question, especially if you think now what's going on that, you know, we have now already the South African mutant, we have the Brazilian mutant, and here in the UK we have this UK mutant, and they are much more infectious apparently than the ones. We don't know yet whether they are even more deadly, but they pose big challenges. So what we did is, we, when we had the structure, we compared the structure to previously determined spike proteins from SARS and MERS. So we had already these three outbreaks and we looked very carefully and extrapolated from the structure which we determined. And indeed, we have now the data that SARS and MERS, uh, they also have this uh, pocket and they also have this uh, linoleic acid binding modality. And in addition, we then had a look uh, what's going on actually with the SARS mutants which are now coming out. And there is a resource on the web which tracks all of these mutants which are sequenced all over the world. And you can then have a look where do the mutations occur. And interestingly, the pocket is extremely conserved. So there are no mutations which target the pocket. You get mutations all over the spike protein and elsewhere in the uh, SARS-CoV-2 genome, but not in the pocket. So there is a reason why that pocket is uh, there. And it means that we can catch all of them. Also the new mutants which are coming out. Well, Imra, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. This is really fascinating work, uh, so thank you again. Thank you so much. Uh, it was my pleasure. And our thanks to Oracle for Research for making this conversation possible and to the Science Podcast audience for your interest and attention. Until next time. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. 
Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.